Good to see all of you. I want to invite you to the book of Job. If you're new to uh, the faith, you might look for the book about jobs. Maybe you'll <laughs> see that. I want to apologize for all of you unemployed who came today thinking this was a series on how to get a job. But uh, it's uh, the book of Job. It's one of those things that um, it's a great book. I, I, I confess to you something after 35 years of pastoring, I've never done a series on this book. This is the first series I've ever done on it. I have taught on it obviously and taught lessons out of it, but as far as a series on the book, this is the first. So uh, Job chapter 1 is where we're going to get started here. And the, uh, you might be wondering about the title we've given the series, Once Upon a Time in the Land of Us. And I was, as I was researching this and looking at this, I, I came across something I thought was quite interesting. The beginning of the book and the end of the book almost sounds like you're reading a fairy tale. The first few words, there was a man in the land of Uz. And then you skip all the way over to the end of the chapter in chapter 42 and in verse number 12 the Bible says, and the Lord blessed Job and we learn, if you will, that the family of Job now, the new family and all the blessings of Job, they lived happily ever after. And so it's, it's one of those things, and that's kind of where the series title came from, was the idea that, now in between, it, it's rough, man. Adversity everywhere. So I want you to do this with me. I want you to pray with me, and I'm going to ask you to pray for the people seated around you. You may not know who they are. You may not know their circumstances today. But God does, doesn't he? Some of them may be encountering things like Job encountered and you would never know. Or maybe you yourself are going through that and you've not shared that with anybody. Nobody knows. So if you would, pray with me and pray for the people seated about you as I pray, okay? Father, we come to you today, Lord, and we love you. We thank you for what our hearts have already felt. And God, we call on you because we need to hear from you. And Lord, as we approach this subject today, this book of Job, I, I pray, God, you would be honored and glorified. I pray for those that are here today, Lord, those that are listening by way of the internet, Lord, I just pray your blessings on them. And, and God, we, we come to you seeking your guidance and your direction. And Lord, may you be our counselor and our teacher. Lord, may the Holy Spirit work in us and work through us. Lord, may you comfort hearts today and encourage us. Help us to apply the principles of your word, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Someone has described the book as being a book of cosmic conflict. It is good versus evil. God versus Satan, if you will. You don't get very far in the reading of the book before you encounter God in a conversation with Satan. Which, by the way, let me pause a moment and share this with you. Barner Research, in a recent survey, surveyed nearly 200, I'm sorry, nearly 2,000 people who identified as Christian. Now, that's significant, so follow with me. They identified as Christians. 40% of them said they do not believe that the devil is a living being, but rather simply a symbol of evil. 19% said they generally agree with that perspective. Ladies and gentlemen, that's nearly 60% of people who say they are Christian who say they do not believe that the devil is real. They think he's just a symbol of evil. 
When a pastor reads that sort of thing, and I think about the people who are listening to this message, I don't know but what there are some here today who might fall into that category. 60% of Christians that were surveyed fall into that category. And so I want to caution you on something. First of all, let me say to you that you cannot understand the book of Job if you do not believe that the devil is an actual being. You cannot, you cannot understand it. I will go farther than that and tell you that you cannot truly understand your life circumstances if you do not understand that the devil is real. He is very real. I'll even go a step farther than that and say to you that I don't believe that we can fully understand why we are here on earth if we do not understand that the devil is real. The book of Job is all about what we've just talked about. There is a looming question of why that seems to be there. I almost entitled this series Puzzled because as you read the book of Job, he is puzzled. And as we live our lives, sometimes we are puzzled. Would you agree? Four of you do, that's good. That's a good number. We get puzzled sometimes. We don't understand. Why is this happening to me? I'm doing this, God. Why is this happening to me? Well, some of this may come, uh, come to uh, uh, understanding here as we go through this. I, uh, I found a, a picture I want to share with you. Do we have that picture? Look at this. The caption, now if, if you're listening by way of internet, you may not be able to see the picture, but it's a, a rather large shark that is following a kayak. And the shark, at least from this angle, looks bigger than the kayak. The original caption underneath this photo when I found it said, he chose kayaking over parasailing thinking it was safer. And, and as you look at that picture, let me just say this to you. I, I really believe this is the way some of us are. If we're not aware of the devil who is in tow, if we're not aware of Satan's attacks, if we're not aware of the predator who seeks whom he may devour, then we're living a little bit like this guy in the kayak right about now. No idea as to the danger that is there. What we're going to do today is we're going to approach the first 12 verses of the book of Job as a four-point inspection. You ever take your car in to have the oil change and they come back to you and they say, you know why we had your car in there? We did this 426-point inspection. And we learned that you need a new flux capacitor. And you say, I didn't even know I had one of those. Well, you do. And the odd thing is you got to drop the engine to get to it. And so we got to do all this work. You ever done that? Well, we're going to do a four-point inspection. Actually asking the Holy Spirit to help us with this. And as a, as, a, uh, as a thought leading into this inspection, may I make this statement to you, please? And this will be foundational throughout our understanding of the book of Job. That sometimes the adversity that comes in our life, it is allowed by God not assigned by God. Now that's a very important point for us to remember. You might be seated here today saying, why did God allow this in my life? Why did he do this? So remember, allowing is one thing, assigning is another. And through all of the adversity, Job never charged God with wrongdoing. And so may that be our case, that no matter how difficult things get, that we do not charge him wrongfully, but we give him glory. 
in the life that we live. We read at the beginning of this uh, book that there was a man in the land of Uz. Not many of you perhaps know where the land of Uz was. That's kind of hard to say. But uh, literally, uh, some believe in the book of Lamentations, this is actually mentioned in Lamentations 4 and verse 21, Rejoice and be glad, O daughter of Edom, you who dwell in the land of Uz. Now, Edom, uh, Edom is where Esau settled. So the Edomites are the descendants of Esau. You remember that Isaac had two sons, Jacob and Esau, and they were completely different from one another. And God's blessings fell upon Jacob. Esau resented that happening, the birthright being given to Jacob. But Esau went out and settled in the land of Edom. Today, the descendants of Esau, the Edomites, are the Palestinians. And for this reason, the Palestinians believe that the land is theirs because the birthright was stolen from Esau. It's interesting because even today in the news this past week, the Palestinians are there again uh, in the headlines as uh, uh, their office in Washington is about to be done away with. And uh, we find again that after all of these years, the struggle goes on between the Edomites and Jacob's descendants. And, and anyway, here we have the land of Uz, probably associated with the land of Edom. We do not know exactly when the book of Job was written, nor do we know who wrote the book. We're not sure. Some have assigned it to Moses. Others have, have assigned it to Solomon. Now, some even believe that Job may have written the book. It does have a poetic flavor to it that would be consistent with some of Solomon's writings. But it also has a lot of truths in it that are similar to what Moses may have written. He was probably, the best that we can tell, Job was probably a contemporary of the early Egyptian bondage, the descendants of Jacob since Esau had settled in the land of Edom and he's from this area. It's probable that he would have lived about that time. I think Job lived prior to the Levitical law that was put into place and the practice that was put into place when they started the wilderness journey. Remember that? And God said, this is going to be my tabernacle. This is how you're going to build it. This is going to be my priest. Aaron is going to be the first. And then we're going to do it this way. The reason I say that is because we find Job offering sacrifice on an altar that he has built for his children. Offering sacrifice for his children on their behalf, which is the, the father, the patriarch of the family becomes the priest of the family, which is similar to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It would be inconsistent with tabernacle worship or temple worship. So for those reasons, we place him back in that time period. Some go as far back as Abraham, but I think that the land of Uz guides us further uh, into about where Moses, uh, just before Moses, and so Moses would have heard of this man, and no doubt God would have given him the words to write that we're reading. I know that's a rather lengthy introduction, but I want to let you know what's happening. So we, we meet this guy, we're about to read his name, and we know him, of course, as Job. Uh, great adversity is about to take place. We will not get into a lot of that this morning, but we will next week. And, and, and with that adversity comes Job's friends. Can I get an amen for Job's friends? Yeah, oh me, yeah. 
At one point, Job looks at him and he says, you're miserable comforters, man. You're just miserable comforters. You're, you're, you're terrible counselors. And then we got another guy, then there's a picture of fourth guy. And so what we're going to do in our series is we're going we're gonna to take a good close look at the beginning here, go into the adversity. We're going to talk about his friends. Uh, we're going to lump together the, the majority of the chapters in between because they're dialogue between him and his friends. And we're going to find out more about how they think. And then we're going to come to the point where God breaks his silence in chapter 38. You ever wonder how come God doesn't speak sometimes? in the midst of adversity? If we could just hear from him, maybe. Give us a little clarity. And sometimes God is silent. So we're going to deal with that in our series, uh, the silence of God. And then the restoration comes. Wow, that's the point we all want to get to. We, when you talk about Job, you want to talk about all the junk he went through. You want to talk about the restoration and the blessings of God being poured out on him. And so we're going to get there. It'll take us about seven weeks to do all of it. And longer if I don't go ahead and get started with this one. So <laughs> point number one in your notes, if you want to write it down, the first inspection is let us inspect our personal walk. Our personal walk. Verse number one again. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright and one who feared God and shunned evil. And seven sons and three daughters were born to him. Also his possessions were 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and a very large household, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. Did you catch that? He was the greatest of all the people of the East. Now this is an interesting guy. As we read about his, his prosperity and his, his position, let's keep reading. We, we find out a little bit more and then we'll go back and, and take a look at this personal walk that we've already mentioned to you. Verse 4. And his sons would go and feast in their houses. Did you catch that? In their houses. So they are grown sons. And then the Bible says, each on his appointed day and would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. So apparently their sisters were still at home, but the sons had houses of their own. So it was when the days of feasting had run their course that Job would send and sanctify them, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did and in the New King James, the word is regularly, faithfully, faithfully he did this. Verse 6, now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came among them. Now by the way, the phrase sons of God, in many cases, particularly in the Old Testament, refers to the angelic realm. There is that big debate that goes on just prior to the flood about the sons of God taking upon them the daughters of men. Were they sons of Seth or were they angelic beings? I happen to believe they were angels. And in this text we find that the context allows us to understand that also. That Satan comes. There's another thought here that I'm going to get a little ahead of myself in. But let me say it to you. And that is though the devil roams about on the earth and though he's rebellious, he is still held accountable to God. 
And so the Bible says the sons of God, the angels came and Satan comes also. Verse 7, and the Lord said to Satan, from where do you come? Now, keep in mind, God never asks a question that he doesn't already know the answer to. Right? He's, he's omniscient, so he knows all things. So he wants Satan to give account, just like he did with Adam in the garden. Adam, where are you? God knew exactly where Adam was, but he wants man to give an account. Verse, uh, verse uh, 7 continues. So Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth and from walking back and forth on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? Now I got to tell you, if ever you want to lay low on the radar. <laughs> Am I right? God brings him up. Now if, well, okay, I'm going to try not to get too far ahead, but God brings him up. Have you considered my servant Job that there is none like him on the earth? And this is why I've continued to read with you because we're talking about a personal walk with God and this is God's testimony. This is not just the author, the writer of the book who mentions to us in the very first verse he was blameless, upright, feared God, shunned evil. This is now God who is speaking and he says of Job he is blameless, upright, fears God and shuns evil. This is God's testimony of Job. Let us pause a moment and think, what would God say about us? Would it be something similar? How close do you walk with the Lord? And by the way, these conversations between the, the Lord and the devil, they do go on today. Uh, we read about them over in the book of Revelation. The Bible talks about how the accuser of our brethren stands before God night and day and he accuses us. And so the devil accuses us. He'll bring your name up. You're, you're part of the conversation in heaven. Don't, don't ever forget that. You're part of it. And the devil's pointing a finger and blaming you for doing things and saying, God, did you see that? They, they claim to be one of yours. Did you see what they've done? And Jesus steps in, ever living to make intercession for us, as the book of Hebrews says. And he says, wait a minute, I paid for that one. They're forgiven. You can't lay that to their charge because I already took care of it. I already took care of it. And so this conversation goes on and we learn of this that is happening in heaven. So what does this mean? What are these characteristics? I'm going to give them to you. There are four of them that are mentioned. First of all, the word blameless is used. In the Hebrew, it is the word tam. And it means literally he's a man of integrity, morally and ethically pure. It's what it means. That the Bible tells us that this man is blameless. Now it doesn't mean that he's without sin. I want to make that very clear. It doesn't mean that he's never sinned. Job has sinned. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So Job was a sinner. However, what it means is he's as right with God as you can be. He knew how to get things right with God. And when we meet him in this chapter, we've already read how he offered sacrifices to God, which tells me, like the psalmist, he tried to come before God when he had done what was wrong or when he thought someone else had done what was wrong, and he tried to ask God for forgiveness and offer some kind of sacrifice that said, God, we're sorry for what... He knew how to repent. And the key in our life is not to live without any flaw. We can't do that. But live without anything between you and God. You can do that. Then the word upright is used, yashar. 
Don't know if I'm saying that right, but it sounds neat. In the Hebrew, it means he was straight, level. You ever heard somebody say, they're on the level? That's kind of an interesting term. I researched it to find out where it came from. You know, I, there used to be a restaurant on the west side of town called Pat and Mike's. Any of you remember that, Pat and Mike's? Anybody here know about that restaurant? Oh, it was good stuff, wasn't it? Went out of business. It was good stuff. They used to have, I don't know why I thought about this. It just came to me. They used to have the little uh, placemats and they had the origins of neat little sayings. And I remember reading one. You heard the saying, somebody says, keep your shirt on. And, and I remember reading that one on the little placemat. And it, it came from, it derived from back in the day when shirts were very expensive. And so if you entered into a fight with somebody, the first thing you did was you took your shirt off. You didn't want to mess up your shirt. Well, so it's always intrigued me how certain, how certain statements have, have come to be. And, and that statement on the level actually is traced back to the 1800s and it was about a carpenter's level that came to be used if a person was straight with you, if a person was honest about something, they used the carpenter's level as a, as a reference. They would say, you're on the level. But in the Hebrew, it goes back much farther than the 1800s. All the way to Job, when the, when the word was used, he was upright, it meant he was on the level. There was, there was nothing false or, or uh, uh, fake about what he was doing. He, he was honest and upright. And the Bible says he feared God. The Hebrew word used here means a reverential fear. He reverenced God. When you reverence God, you are in awe of God. Sometimes there ought to be an occasion in our life when we go before God and we are in awe of him. To be in awe of him. A reverential fear. The Bible says in Proverbs chapter 9 verse 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. You want wisdom? Matter of fact, there's another verse that says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. You want knowledge, you want wisdom. Knowledge is the accumulation of facts, but wisdom is the proper application of that knowledge. You want those things? Let it begin with reverential fear of God. That's where it starts. Job had that. And then there is the word shunned. He shunned evil. In the Hebrew is the word sur. And it literally means to depart or remove oneself from evil. It doesn't mean he never encountered evil. It means that when he found himself in the midst of it, he left. He got away from it. Proverbs chapter 4, beginning in verse 14, do not enter the path of the wicked and do not walk in the way of evil. Avoid it. Do not travel on it. Turn away from it and pass on, for they do not sleep unless they have done evil, and their sleep is taken away unless they make someone fall, the Bible says. It's interesting, if Solomon did write the book, what Solomon portrays Job as going through and how he handled it is very similar to the principles that God had him lay down in the book of Proverbs. So you'll find many Proverbs that apply to Job's life and how he did things, how he handled things. Now, we have a tendency to believe that if we walk with God, then things are good. You don't need to amen that. I know it's a fact. We believe that, don't we? Now, I will say to you that to some degree that is true. You walk with God, God promises his blessings. But let me make this very clear. There is no promise 
that when you walk with God, you will not go through adversity. You will not encounter the storm. I, I want to remind you that the house that Jesus talked about in the, in the Sermon on the Mount, the story of the, of the two men who built houses, one on the sand and the other one on the rock, they both encountered the storm. The only difference was after the storm, one was still standing and the other had fallen apart. But the storm came to both. George Mueller, many of you are familiar with George Mueller's life, and he made this statement. He said, if we walk with God in any measure of uprightness of heart, the trials of faith will be greater and greater. It's real encouraging, isn't it? <laughs> Micah chapter 6, verse 8, the question must be asked then, well then what are we supposed to do? If we're, you know, if we can't, if we, if we follow the Lord, if we walk with the Lord, we're going to encounter difficulties anyway. So, so what do we do? Micah 6 verse 8, He has shown you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. So let us examine our personal walk with God. What would the conversation sound like today if God used your name and he said, you know, there's a person who's really trying. Would he say that? Would he say similar things about you that he says about Job? And then secondly, let, let us inspect this. Let us inspect our pursuit of wealth. Job was a wealthy man. Make no mistake about it. Job was a very wealthy man. The greatest in the East, the Bible says. Now, God is not he is not anti-wealth. I want to make that very clear. He is not anti-wealth. If you were to study the scriptures, you would find that two men particularly were more wealthy than anyone else, and God gave them their wealth. That was Abraham and Solomon. God gave it to them. Now, I know some of you now are praying, well then, how about me, God? Put that, <laughs> that's the conversation I want to be in, Lord. The truth of the matter is he can't trust all of us with it. I know you are thinking he can and you're going to try the rest of the service to convince him you can, or he can. But, but the truth is that sometimes he can't, and he does not do that. And the problem is not wealth. The problem is the love of wealth and the desire to be rich. That is where the difficulty comes from. When we look at this man, we find that he is very wealthy. You know, money makes us do strange things, and sometimes we're not always honest because of money. I, I read the story this past week of the man who, who couldn't sleep, and he, he sat down uh, early, early in the morning, and he wrote a note to the IRS. He said, enclosed, please find a check for $150. I've cheated on my income tax, and I cannot sleep. And then he added, P.S., if I still can't sleep, I'll send the rest. <laughs> Money makes us do funny things, strange things. It is true that if we serve God, we think we will prosper. And, and be very careful with this because there's a lot of people out there today that are teaching what is known as prosperity gospel. That if you're serving God, then he has plans for you to have a four-car garage and a Lamborghini in one, a Harley in the next, and a boat maybe parked in the other, and who knows what in the other. I don't know. An extra Porsche. I really don't know. But, but the idea somehow is in our head that if we're serving God, that, that we ought to have much God doesn't always plan that for us. I learned that many years ago as I thought about the family he sent Jesus to this earth with. Mary and Joseph did not have much. 
Think about how Jesus was born. Of all the places he could have been born. Why a stable? His earthly dad, Joseph, who had the responsibility of helping to raise him, was a carpenter, a hard-working, blue-collar worker. He could have sent him to a palatial place. He could have sent him into the midst of a, a wealthy. But somehow God wanted to get a message across to us that he had come to even those who had nothing. Had nothing. The Bible talks a lot about what prosperity is. And somehow in our minds, maybe what we need to do is we need to redefine the word prosper. What does it mean to prosper? Well, the Bible tells us that there are some who think that godliness will bring that prosperity. 1 Timothy chapter 6, beginning in verse 3. 1 Timothy chapter 6, beginning in verse 3. If anyone teaches otherwise and does not consent to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which accords with godliness, he is proud, knowing nothing, but is obsessed with disputes and arguments over words, from which come envy, strife, reveling, evil suspicions, useless wranglings of men, of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth, who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. Let me pause there for a moment. That godliness is a means of gain. This is an interesting thought. Why do you serve God? Do you serve him believing that somehow God is going to bless you materially? Is that the motive behind your service? The Bible says there are some who believe that. They believe that godliness equals great gain. But then he goes on in this verse, in this passage, and he says, From such withdraw yourself, verse 6. Now godliness with contentment is great gain. Now there's the reality. The reality is that godliness plus contentment equals great gain. You ever notice how that some people who have much have no peace? It is not enough. It is not enough. Verse 7, For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and clothing, uh, with these we shall be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare, and into many foolish and harmful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. So the Bible talks about the, the love of money, the desire to be rich. That's where the problem tends to come from. So, so again... In this pursuit of wealth, where is God? And are we serving God only because we think it's going to somehow bless us materially? One of our elder devotions recently, uh, Brother Jeff Reber brought out an interesting point concerning the prodigal son and how that the older son uh, was, uh, had a problem with the dad killing the fatted calf. And it was an interesting devotion that he brought. And, 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 and he said, you know, I've been here with you all this time and you've never given to me the fatted calf that I could kill with my friends. And the point was made, and, and rightly so, that his motive for serving was only so that he could have. Is that why we serve him? 
Does that mean then that we will stop serving him if we do not gather? If he doesn't bless? That's what Satan thought would happen with Job. We'll get there in a minute. Let's talk about our practice in worship. This is the third the third point of inspection, our practice in worship. We read earlier that Job built an altar and offered sacrifices for his children. And this he did regularly. Regularly. Now that is a word I want to drive home today because we live in a world where, if anything, church attendance is not regularly. <laughs> and I want to stop and ask you to think about your relationship with the Lord. And I want you to think in terms of how faithful we actually are. We are a people who like our availability to various things. And if we're not careful, what we tend to do is set God aside while we do many of the other things we enjoy doing in our life. He wants first place. He wants priority preeminence. Make no mistake about it. He doesn't want your leftovers. He wants from your first. Whether it be your time or your talent or your tithe or anything else that goes along with that, I'm telling you, ladies and gentlemen, he wants preeminence. And the Bible says that Job did this regularly. Regularly. I like this because he, he becomes an example of parenting. He's a parent who has the spiritual well-being of his children in mind. Now, I want you to focus on that with me for a moment. I'm going to give you several words here that I think will help us with parenting. So let me give them to you. There are seven of them. They're all going to come up on the PowerPoint for you. You can uh, fill them in if you'd like. Uh, number one is boundaries. Set boundaries. Let, let your young people, let your children know what, what those boundaries are. And believe it or not, statistics show that, that children, young people, they appreciate boundaries. It tells them where the line is, what, what is allowed and what is not allowed. God did this with Adam and Eve at the very beginning, did he not? You may freely eat of every tree of the garden except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't eat of it. Don't, don't eat of it. So what God did was he placed boundaries. Uh, number two on that list is behavior. Set behavior as an example. Define expectation by the behavior you have. Listen, this whole thing, I, I, I remember the old saying growing up, you know, you do as I tell you, not as I do. Well, that might have flown many, many years ago. It don't fly anymore. Because your walk is going to talk a lot farther than your talk will ever walk. And the truth of the matter is we need to set the example ourselves. We're telling our young people that they need to do certain things. How are we doing with that? How are we doing with that? Bombard heaven is the third thing. If you've got teenagers, you know what it means to pray. <laughs> amen? Not very many amens, just a lot of prayer. Bombard heaven. You got to pray for them, man. Intercede for them. Ask for wisdom and guidance and understanding. Balance. I think when we talk about balance, we're talking about balancing law and grace. Sometimes parents can do this just between themselves. One tends to be more of the law and the other one tends to be more of grace. If you're a single parent, you got to learn to do both and that is tough. That is hard. 
So there are times that the law is present. There's consequences for that thing. And then there are times that grace manifests itself. And they didn't deserve to get off, but you let them get off. Bible is number five. Talk about the word of God. Teach them the word of God. Deuteronomy chapter 6 deals with this. You shall love the Lord your God, verse 5 says. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. And things uh, or these uh, words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. So we should talk about the things of God with our children we should teach them to beware. There are consequences, and consequences doesn't mean that they're not forgiven, but sometimes there are consequences that go along with the decisions that we make. And because of that, we should have discernment. Teach them to make good decisions. Good decisions. And then last of all, be mindful. Be mindful of accountability. You know, some of us live our lives as though we're not accountable to anybody. What are you sending as a message to your young people? Can I let you in on what that is? They're accountable to nobody. Well, they may be accountable to you until they reach a certain age, and then, buddy, they'll exercise what they've seen you exercise. And they're accountable to nobody. I'm telling you, you are accountable, and the day will come when we stand before God and we give account. Every one of us. Job knew that. So he prayed for his children. He offered sacrifice for his kids. Ecclesiastes 12, and beginning in verse 13. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is man's all. For God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. Can I get an Amen. Number four, and all God's people said, thank the Lord. <laughs> Number four, our purpose in this world. I don't have a great deal of time to spend on this with you, but I do want to touch on it. Why are we here? Why are we here? Look at verse um, nine. So Satan answered the Lord and said, does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge around him, around his household, and around all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hand and his possessions and have increased, his possessions have increased in the land. But now stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will surely curse you to your face. Now, what does that tell you? What we've just read, what does that tell you? Earlier, God said, Satan, have you considered my servant, Job? And in Satan's response, it becomes evident that he's not only considered him, He's gone after him and can't get to him time and time again. So now he attacks. This is the first attack that Job receives. Now, I want you to listen to me. We all think about the loss of his children. We all think about the loss of his possessions. But those come after this attack. This attack is on his character. You see, the devil will attack your character. He will go before God and he will say, I can get them to turn on you, God. You let me at him and he will curse you before too long. That's what Satan said. 
Verse 12, And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power, only do not lay a hand on his person. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Again, we come back to that thought. He allows but does not assign this adversity. Now, why does God do this? This becomes the question that looms throughout this whole book. It comes back to our purpose. In our ABF class, our Bible study group this morning, in my class, we were talking about, we have a tendency to believe that God is here for us. So when we pray, we pray that way. God, this is the list of things I have for you today. Could you take care of these things for me? But in reality, the opposite is true. We are here for him. We exist for the very purpose of bringing him glory in our lives. That's why we breathe, to bring him glory. Say, Pastor, do you have a verse of scripture? I have, yeah, matter of fact. I'm glad you asked. Uh, Psalm 86 and verse 12, I will praise you, O Lord my God, with all my heart. I will glorify your name forevermore. Matthew 5, verse 16, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 20, For you were bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. And if that's still confusing to you, 1 Corinthians 10, verse 31, Therefore whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So here we have Satan coming before God and they're talking about Job and Satan says, I can get him to curse you. I can get him to turn on you. I can make him fall away from this whole practice of religion that he does regularly. I can get him to do this. And God is thinking, no, no. Not him. And he takes the opportunity to get glory out of Job's life. There's a couple reasons adversity will come your way. Sometimes it's to help us grow, but most of the time it is for his glory. For his glory. Rick Warren in The Purpose Driven Life came out with a 10th anniversary of that book, and in that book he cited several things concerning our purpose in life. Let me give them to you. He said, we are planned for God's pleasure. We are formed for God's family. We are created to become like Christ. We are shaped to serve God. We are made for a mission. When you leave here today, I want you to understand God has a purpose for you. And somehow, no matter what your circumstance is, we are to glorify him in it. Let us pray. Father, we come to you today and we thank you for your word. We ask you, God, to move among us. And Lord, in this brief time that we call an invitation where we address the issues that you may have laid on our hearts, I pray concerning our personal walk. I pray concerning our practice in worship. I pray concerning our pursuit of wealth, that it might be in the proper perspective. And God, I pray concerning our purpose in this world. 
in Jesus' name. While heads are bowed and eyes are closed.